Well, hello there. This is Jim the Keys Bartender coming to you from a steamy Key Largo. If you're not familiar with the Keys Bartender podcast, it's a podcast about bartending in life, life in the Keys and all that stuff. Well, I wanted to start out today just talking about the ease of uh, bartending with technology and using technology and new developments in it. I imagine if you go back 100 years, well, 100 years in the United States, you'd be in the middle of the Prohibition era. So it wasn't a lot of bartending then, unless you worked in a speakeasy. But as I thought of it, was thinking the whole process of doing it, bartending in the beginning, cocktails, there were limited selection. There wasn't a ton of liquors, a ton of liquors. There were a lot you know, worldwide. But the logistics of bars getting everything, the supply chain, getting these items, let's say when Prohibition was lifted, I think it was 1934 or 35 or something like that. And um, they just had, you know, you may have had like 20, 30 liquors in a bar at most. And so there wasn't a lot of things. You mean, you needed your ice, you needed your mixers, maybe some martinis. You know, you had good club soda, you had some soda and things like that. All this different stuff going on. So when blenders started coming into place and POS systems and uh, dispensing systems for measured pours all came about, you'd think that automation makes things less complicated where a lot of times automation and it becomes more complicated because there's bugs when i say bugs i'm talking about bugs as in software bugs where things don't work correctly and when you're doing more things like making frozen drinks making 50 different types of old fashions with your flavored bitters. And I mean, there's tons of things you could do. Hundreds of different flavored vodkas, different flavored rums, different flavored gins, all the different liqueurs. Yeah, it gets kind of complicated and things like that. What I wanted to get back to is one of the rudimentary things and about uh, frozen drinks. And frozen drinks, when they first came about, when people started thinking, it's when you had the ease of access to ice because you needed ice to make the frozen drink, obviously, and you need to have access to it. Before you had a lot of extra ice and ice was hard to come by. No one ever thought and said, we'll make this drink frozen. And you need a high splend, uh, high-speed blender. And nowadays, you'll ask a bartender when you hear someone wants a frozen drink, that was like a pain in the ass for a bartender when they're in flow making their frozen drinks. Well, I, you got to try to get into your rhythm. That's the main thing. You just got to get into your rhythm making your drinks. And the system we have at the bar I work now, I used to get all call drinks because we didn't have a POS system. So there was no need to write down. When we were real busy, I asked this servers to write down their drinks so I wouldn't have to remember seven or eight drinks in order. And then I'd have someone else come up if I had to remember someone called out drinks and then someone called up another 
a set of drinks, there's a possibility I could forget the whole list. But now with our POS system, when it prints out, I get all these tickets. And it's pretty nice. I have to say it's pretty nice because the way I see it now is I see a group of tickets. I see a bunch of beers and stuff like that. I see mixed drinks. I see frozen drinks. I try to group all the frozen drinks together, make frozen drink, all the martinis and this. And I can just power through it. I just have a list to go through. And every so often I can go and break off and take care of someone at the bar. And that's the flow of me working in concert with the technology. So the blender drinks used to give a lot of consternation to people. You know what I mean? Someone had pina colada, virgin pina colada, frozen margarita, rum runner. You know, tons of things. Tons of things you can make with that. Milkshakes. We have one blender. Yes, it's a pain in the ass to to clean the blender. We also have a peanut butter martini that's blended. And it uses real peanut butter. So in that case, you got to really take uh, particular uh, attention to the, the mixing cup because you don't want that peanut laying around there in case someone has a peanut allergy. Yeah, peanut allergy is a thing. I remember as a kid, I never heard of it. Never heard of someone having a peanut allergy. Now they got to pr- practically... Uh, call in the EPA when uh, you go to a certain place and there's a couple kids with peanut allergies. You know, they got to go and sanitize the whole area of all the peanut dust. So when I'm making a peanut butter martini or something like that, I got to really make sure at the end of it, I got to clean out that blender. (laughs) But I don't fret as much as I did with the frozen drinks. I used to fret all the time about it. And then I eyeball it. I mean, these things you can measure years ago when I first started bartending. There was the one uh, nightclub I worked at. We were using our measuring cups the whole time. Little shot measures to make it so we didn't over pour. And I think that's a great way of doing it. It is a great way of doing it. It's also a slow way of doing it. If you're aware of your glass and you get an idea of what, how much you can eyeball it. If you can get it between an ounce and a half and two ounces, that's pretty good. It's when you have a lot of different glassware that it's hard to really visualize the amount of liquor because you got you you're checking against the lever level of liquid inside, let's say, a container with ice, and that's hence one of the blender issues. People, when you have to go and make so many diverse blended drinks. You, you got to think about all the liquor. Well, I'm suggesting lose all the particular, you know, you're being particular when it comes to be, uh, blended drinks and try to eyeball it. Try to eyeball it. It's hard to do. It is hard to do. But once you have to do that, when you're on a busy, you have a busy streak, the peak hours, and you get used to doing that eyeball thing, man, does it save you time. So when I make a pina colada, we do it from, we get the Coco Lopez, we get a little pineapple, we got rum. You can put it all in different ways, but I like to start with my liquor first. I use the rum, put in the Coco Lopez, pineapple. Obviously, I have the ice in already. I kind of visualize how much ice I need for a 14 and a half ounce cup. And I blend it. And then I go move on, and I'm making drinks while that's blending. 
And then when I'm done making a couple drinks and stuff, I go over to blender, boom, boom, pour in a glass, garnish drink, it's out the door. And that's speed bartending. All that technology did not change the order of operation that I had. I had my ticket, I did it, I didn't fret any, and I put out the product. And once you keep on putting out product and without having, you figure out ways of, uh, let's say, streamlining the process, bartending becomes a breeze. On another note, I just noticed that uh, an Apple wallet, uh, there's about four or five states that now have digital IDs. Places like Georgia, Maryland, I forget, maybe Arizona, I think. And I'm, I'm missing a couple, but there are about like, in the next year, there'll probably be five more states. Eventually, almost all IDs will be available on a smart device, a phone. And originally, bar owners and bartenders and servers alike, they thought, this is a horrible idea. Because how you're going to verify that that ID on the smart device is the person presenting it. I mean, anybody can doctor a photo digitally and, you know, think of deep fakes and all that stuff. You just take a picture, you put it on some other ID or, you, you know, some app. And you got someone who's 18 years old saying they're to 22. That's not a good enough proof that you're of age. Well, it's the verification process that makes it. So nowadays, a lot of people, if you're not familiar with, uh, the, if you're not a tech person, what you do is the state provides you with an application to save your ID on your phone, right? And it ge- and generates a, a, um, a scannable symbol on your phone. And there's another application called verification that ties into the state database. And when you scan that symbol on someone's phone, you, you as a verifying person, it'll come up with a picture and all the pertinent information, their age, their address, blah, 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 blah. And it's secure information. You can't save it. Um, I don't know if you'll probably save a screenshot and stuff like that. So I think there's some privacy issues they're probably trying to uh, iron out. Now, Florida is doing, doing kind of like a beta test. And it's a digital ID verifier. And I was messing around with it. So I downloaded mine. I check. I got my my driver's license, and uh, I downloaded the verification. There's two separate apps. So there's one that had your uh, that contains your driver's license, and there's another app for verification. And there's verification for business owners, and there's verification for police officers. Police officers want to get the verification. You know the when someone has an idea, and this is the rules of it, the way it works, at least in Florida. <clears throat> you, bring up the, you bring up your ID, it'll generate a symbol. The police officer, business owner, 
or employee will get to be able to scan using the appropriate verification technology and it feeds back into the state database. So for someone to alter their age on your phone, they have to get into that database, the state database, and alter the information they have there. Okay? And it'll come up with a photo that is matching the information that you bring out from the state. And you get to see that person there. It's pretty cool. I like it. And uh, I don't see that there being a problem with it other than uh, they're still doing a redundant system. Meaning you have to, not only do you have to use this, you could use a digital ID. But you also have to always have your physical ID with you. Which kind of say, why have a digital ID if you have to maintain that? Same thing with your credit cards, because your credit cards exist in that digital wallet. And in most businesses nowadays, at least in the United States, that have credit card processing, they also have an option to have uh, the credit card scan. You don't even have to have the credit card uh, on you at the time. So we eventually, one at one time, we're going to be able to have everything on our smartphone like they envisioned it. It's like a half-assed Star Trek where you have, remember, if you're old enough, and I think the demographics of the show, they had all these different devices. Like the doctor had a little thing, scanning thing for scanning someone's body. And then he had another one for holding the hand, holding in his hand to get it. And then you had the communicator for all the other crew members. And they had the little communication device on the hip. And they had the little phasers. You know, you think eventually, shouldn't it all be one? Right? Instead of having five different things. I mean, that's what people really want, don't they? They want to pay on one thing and they say, what do you got there? And I have everything. I have my identification, all my credit information, all my documents, my passport, my resumes, my work history, which is, I guess, the same as a resume, my degrees, all the pictures that ever existed of me also exist on my phone. I mean, normally you have to carry a 100-pound steamer trunk to carry all that shit with you. Now we can get it all one time. But when it doesn't work, though, when it doesn't work, it doesn't work. It's a cataclysm. It's amazing when it doesn't work. It's the biggest thing in the world. Uh, when we get people coming from out of state, that from a state that has digital ID, and they say... Oh, here's my digital ID. And they said, well, we have no way of verifying that's a true visual, you know, digital ID. We'd have to actually go into our, uh, we'd have to have a, the verification, the state verification app from the state you're from. And that's just, that's too complicated. So eventually they're probably, People have a problem with giving their information.
They really do. They don't want to know who the person is. I mean, having information out there isn't that bad. It's having it being able to be used for nefarious uh, means like stealing your identity, uh, setting up credit accounts and things like that. That all sucks. And they're all thinking, because just think of just credit cards without, um, prior to the advent of having them smart cards on, on your phone, on your, on your digital device. There was, there was tons of identity theft, a lot of credit theft. And what did they do? The credit card companies, in order to alleviate that, they did some of them. If you had a better one, they said, well, if there's fraud, you're not, you know, for some of the companies, if it's a higher end company or one that provides more particular service for someone, they said, well, if we identify it as fraud, then uh, we'll take care of it. In most cases, though, a lot of places make it your responsibility. Your responsibility, they issue the credit to someone who's not you in another state, let's say. And you're responsible for uh, adjusting that information or getting it, uh, writing, writing that wrong. Otherwise, your credit credit screwed up. I think that's fucked up. I think the issuer of the credit to uh, the credit card to the wrong person, the person that's not you, is responsible for it. And they're responsible for all the aggravation and cost of addressing that identity theft. I don't know how we got into this place when it's something like that. It could be possible. How could it be possible that anybody had their identity stolen be the least bit responsible for it or have to handle the repercussions? Once it's identifying, people say, well, you got you to gotta do this, 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 and this. No, you got to do it. So that, that's one of the things I'd like to see done. And I'd like people not to automatically accept that when someone screws up, i.e. the credit card companies or the banks, that they don't automatically kick the responsibility back to you. So on a lighter note, love, not love, I want to talk about. That love and not love is almost like a binary choice, right? The way in life we, we become in our life. We, we have something that we're attached to. And I can even talk to about a physical object, a person, a place, a lifestyle. I want smoking. Smoking is love, not love. If you're a smoker, I used to be a smoker. Every so often you think, man, I wish I wasn't smoking. How did I get to this place where I'm buying? I'm paying money every day, smoking cigarettes. I got to stop. And I have this cigarette. Um, I got to pay whatever amount. I mean, for God's sakes, I have no idea what it is in Manhattan now for a pack of cigarettes. Uh, but it could be like $17, $18, $20 a pack. No. I mean, that sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Yeah, and it's 
you're, you're paying for the privilege of having a bad health outcome later in life. But people love cigarettes. They do when they're smoking. When they're smoking, obviously they love cigarettes. And when they're not smokers, they hate them. But letting go of it, just deciding at the end of the day, I don't want to be a smoker. I don't want to have the uh, negative health outcome. So what do I do? You know, you try to quit and things like that. So it's so hard to let that go. And we, we have an attachment to that thing. Just like a food. When I had my heart incident, I definitely love red meat. I love desserts. I love sugar. I work out a lot, so my body would not necessarily outwardly manifest the kind of habits that I was consuming, the food I was consuming. My body wasn't manifesting that. It didn't look like I ate like tons of cake, tons of cookies, this ice cream and things like that. But internally, my heart may have suffered those repercussions. So it was very hard for me to let that go. And when I when I get away, when I start eschewing those sweets and red meat, I start feeling that longing for the thing I can't have or don't want to have. And I'm think I think about it more. I start fantasizing about a cake, about going to the bakery department in my local supermarket, Publix. They have this bakery department. It's always like four or five people down there and baking like crazy. Breads, pastries, cakes, cookies, cupcakes, brownies, everything. And you walk through it and it's just like, I, I just feel drawn to it drawn to it and it's so hard before I tried to um, before I tried quitting I would could easily walk by and not think about it just go and get the things I was forgetting things when I go to the supermarket I'd go in there for the pastries and then come back out with uh, laundry detergent and pork chops when I meant to get chocolate chip cookies now when I go for vegetables and fruit and maybe some low-fat yogurt, I end up with a box of chocolate chip cookies. So it's a thing we resist. We actually get drawn to. And old relationships. I remember years and years when I... I, It took me a while to um, get into the rhythm of dating. As in high school, I've had some fits and starts. Was not smooth in the least. Was not smooth in the least. You know, did the typical things. Go to a movie. Maybe some ice cream afterwards. Yeah, it was it was the early 80s, right? And I was a nerd. Understand. I didn't really start hitting my groove until my college years. And then after my college years. But in the beginning, it was hard. I, was, I told you that it was fitful starts. I get into a relationship and the person I was with, I knew for some reason, some of these uh, women I was involved with 
They were all nice. They were all nice. But not all of them at the time you think, well, this isn't necessarily fun, is it? I, I mean, this isn't the kind of relationship I really want to be in. We don't actually share the same goals. We don't like the same things. Sometimes she doesn't even seem like she enjoys my company that much. But it was so hard not seeing them because I think in my head, when, who am I going to see afterwards? Who am I going to get along with? Who am I get to, you know, who, who's going to let me be physically intimate with them? And I would stay in that relationship. And if the relationship ended, I would pine over that relationship and feel bad about it. Spend an inordinate amount of energy over a relationship that's over instead of cultivating a new one. And you do it for the longest time. In my first marriage, I did that. I went to four different marriage counselors with my wife. She was a... Nice woman, nice woman. We just, oil and water. We did not have the same goals towards the end, a relationship. Or maybe we didn't have the goals in the beginning. But we went to four different marriage therapies, therapists. One of them passed away in between appointments. And when we showed up for an appointment, he wasn't there. And then we found, you know, we couldn't get a hold of him or anything like that. And we found out a couple of days later, he had passed away. We had gotten a note from his brother. But in all those four different therapists, none of them came up with the thing, well, maybe you guys aren't ready or maybe you shouldn't have gotten married. Maybe it's time to call it quits. Eventually, it was my ex-wife that suggested a separation. And that suggested separation was like in my head. You think when you hear... Yeah, we'd like you to move out. And you'd be crushed. And in my head, I was like, oh, it was almost like a relief, right? I didn't know how to end it either. Well, she she had the guts to do it. She had the guts to separate and stuff like that. Uh, so I'm not revealing too much information, I don't think, about that. Because that was pretty much what everyone knows about. That we went to all these different therapists. And in the end, she asked for a separation. I moved down here to Key West. And she stayed up north, and we're leading our best lives separately. But I don't know. I may have ended up staying in that for years. And, and people do it all the time. They stay in jobs. They stay in particular living situations. Maybe not moving someplace. Now, I'm not a big believer in location changes. Because the biggest changes that happen in your life is change from inside. But one of the changes from inside is deciding when to let something go. And you have to let uh, certain jobs, relationships, lifestyles. But we become so attached to them that we can't visualize what it would be without those things. Well, it would actually be a new life. I had done that with, uh, and I'm not saying I'm the master of it, because yes, I stay with, I stayed in some jobs, I stay in too long. But I also realized sometimes when I don't like things, it's my psyche sabotaging that, 
sabotaging that thing about, you know, you don't like your job, you need a new job and stuff like that. And I said, well, no, wait, maybe it's not the job. Maybe it's me. Maybe I, I, I've become comfortable thinking about my work that way when I have to be saying, hey, you know what? I should be happier about it because I do spend one of my third of my life doing it. Oh, you know, more than one third if you think about waking hours. I do this all the time with that. When I think uh, there's, there has to be so bad, things have to be so bad that you have to really, there's no choice but to change. And it's, that's how, what happened with the drinking the first time. The first time I, I realized that I was drinking heavy in 2007 and I was doing the same thing, creating it. And I thought, boy, I would really like to change that. At the, the one point in 2007, and uh, I think it was August of 2007, I said, boy, I really could, that would be, that would be pretty good because I'm not, it's not really doing that well. Now, that acceptance for seven years, I allowed a creep back. It was almost like a, a romanticization of my past relationship with alcohol came back in 2014 and I thought oh I don't have to go to my meetings I don't have to do this I don't have to do that and then I could probably handle a glass of wine here and there when I was by the in 2014 to 2019 when I went back to drinking I had gotten back to the rhythm of self-destructive drinking or alcohol consumption where I had to go and do it again quit but it was easy because I did it before I realized that yeah I'm still going to have problems when I'm not drinking but I'm not going to have those problems and I, it didn't really do what it does for other people same thing with the cookies and meat I go overboard with it I like that big ass steak if you're one, one of these people that wonder when you go to a, a restaurant and you see, oh, they got a 24-ounce cut uh, prime rib. Well, who the hell is going to eat 24 ounces? That was me. That was me doing a 24-ounce. Now I'm going like this. Now I realize 12 ounces is fine. Some of you are the 24-ounce person. You don't do that every day, do you? I would like to do that every day. But... Yeah, I won't be here much longer if I did that every day. So sometimes we have to weigh that idea on moving on. Moving on from the things that we no longer did, no longer benefit us, no longer make us, ha- no longer, uh, make us happy. Uh, they continue, they contribute to our general anxiety. So a lot of times it's just better to just let it go. And uh, that's my message for today. I'd like to thank you for listening. I like had a great time talking to you today. And I will be back again soon to see how everything is going. Bye. This is Jim the Keys Bartender saying goodbye.